Hey everyone, Nick Rutley here for another episode of the Hear the Voice podcast. My guest today is Darren Harris, head coach of the Claremont Tigers Football Club. It's a terrific story about his coaching journey from where he started to where he is now. I really encourage you to get a notepad and pen and take some notes because what he gives in the pod is a fantastic insight and journey. Not always easy, but so many great learnings for aspiring leaders, athletes and coaches and I think you'll really enjoy it. I need to shout out to some people that helped put this together. I got some great information from players and people that were involved with Darren at the Wodonga Raiders, Stephen Clark, Jason Lappin, Adam Curley who represented West Perth and played under Darren and Mark Johnson, the current Wodonga Raiders president who also helped me get in touch with some of these guys and get a better insight into the person that is Darren Harris. It's a lot of fun making podcasts like this when you get to talk to people in the community about someone's journey, and I had a great time making it. Hope you enjoy it. Here it is, Darren Harris. Darren Harris, welcome to Hear the Voice. Thank you very much, Nick. Good to be here. How are things? We find you in Perth. Are you in Claremont exactly? Or No, I'm living in Duncraig, northern suburbs. Yep. Um, so, yeah, uh, but obviously coaching and, and working at the Claremont Footy Club. So, obviously, in this current climate, uh, my first two guests uh, were hit by the COVID virus, not uh, directly, but it's affected their footy um, and you're the first coach that we've had on and obviously it's still going to be around for a while, they're predicting. What are you guys doing to to battle it and get through it in terms of staying connected to your players and staff for that matter? Yeah, it's an interesting time. We, we're probably a bit lucky that um, oh, we're three years into a program at Claremont, so it's my, I've coached them for three years now um, heading into the fourth year. So over that period of time, you set yourselves up with, um, you know, how your leaders evolve, um, what what the best way is to to learn about your group, and and I, I guess set up a welfare um, program where you know no one slips through the cracks. So because we had a lot of that in place, um, and it evolved over three years of reviewing it and trying to improve it, um, you know, a couple of weeks before it all got shut down. We'd had some good conversations at match committee around what it's going to look like. Um, and we prioritised four key areas and we shared that with the players and we've sort of stayed pretty true to that. So our number one priority was going to be the health and wellbeing of our group. So, you know, we said, we, we told them to listen to the health professionals because we were a bit in, the, bit in the dark at that stage exactly where it was going to go. But... We didn't want anyone's family getting sick. Um, it had just been reported in Queensland that, you know, someone's mother had died and the, the, the actual child had passed on the disease and um, the virus. So we, we were pretty clear on the fact that we needed to separate ourselves pretty early and do the right thing. So that was our number one priority. Our number, our, our number two priority was um, linked to our values of mateship. So we wanted to stay connected. Um, and so we needed some, I guess, uh, some solutions around how that would look. Um, the third thing 
that was important for us that was that we trained to win. We were stayed fit and strong. So our medical and our um, S&C staff had put together programs around that. Um, and we have pod leaders in place. So pod leaders, um, so we have 10 of those and they all have about six or seven players each that they look after. Uh, and, the, and the last one was do your job. So we haven't really touched on the do your job thing just yet, but we're, we're getting close to, to getting involved in that. And that means understand your role, know your role and play it. So there's a fair bit of education around that. And we thought if we got those four things right, the idea is to come back and um, be in a position where we can win games of footy. But um, yeah, in that order, that's what we've been working on, mate. Gives you some time to tinker with that too. I mean, although it is a crisis and gives you a little bit of perspective on maybe how we can look at things differently, especially I love the concept around the pod uh, groups, uh, similar to a, a thing that I'd heard of and tried out in the past, duty of care, doc groups. Um, and given the, the ownership and the autonomy to the players to lead, which is awesome. Um, I know it's not ideal because you want to be playing footy, but do you get to have a look at it from an outsider's perspective as a head coach being in the current climate that we're in and then go, okay, this worked well. Maybe we tinker with this. Potentially we could bring this in or we can drop that by the time and hopefully the time Claremont run around and, and start playing footy. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing that we decided, you know, three years ago and we've been working really hard on is is this whole mateship and connected piece because if blokes feel like they really, really belong and they're bought into a we mentality and not not a me mentality, which, which is not easy um, for young men that are in a hurry these days, but over that three years, they've really bought into those values. And so... What, what it's given us a chance to do, because we, we sent out surveys as well just to check in on how everyone's going and where they need support. So whether, whether that's employment, um, you know, whether that's, you know, family health, it's whatever it was. Um, and so once we got all those details back, we're able to follow players up. But over this period of time and checking in, and you learn a lot about different blokes' personalities. So some have, you know, been pretty quiet around the, the WhatsApp and the, but, but we'll take your phone call or want to catch up and, you know, um, have a really good chat. So we're learning a lot about our people. And what we've also realised is one size doesn't fit all. So I think that'll be what we take back to the to the game. We, we know it, but we probably do things that are more generic. And so to be able to go back and go, okay, well, one size doesn't fit all. And that's training programs, strength programs, uh, meetings, whatever it is, um, yeah, I think we're going to be better educated about our group with regards to that. So, you know, some players we trust are able to go and do a fitness program, for example, at the moment, we just trust we know they're going to get it done and they're going to stay fit and healthy, whereas others really want a prescribed program. These are the minutes. This is exactly what I've got to do um, because it holds them accountable and that's what they need to set them up for success. So, yeah, it's been good from that point of view, mate. You've touched on already before we even start the chat and and the the podcast itself, if you will, as to the reasons why I've got you on. And but already I'm hearing mateship, I'm hearing connectedness, and now I'm also hearing treating every case differently. You know, your list after three years now that you can bank on guys that will get the work done, but you've got to maybe push and prod others. And it's no secret to listen to you talk like that now. And we've done a little bit of well, we I've done a little bit of research in in regards to talking to you and 
went down a, a Wodonga Raiders uh, rabbit hole, if you will. And I've got to, I've got to say, if we don't say Raiders, we're getting a lot of trouble. I was talking to Stephen Clark and I just said Wodonga and he jumped down my throat because uh, he said, you're not referring to the Bulldogs, are you? I said, no, no, no. So he got, we spoke to him, spoke to Mark Johnson, the current president, spoke to Adam Curley, who you coached at uh, West Perth, and Jason Lappin, who you coached at, uh, at Wodonga Raiders as well. And something that they all touched on separately was how you were able to treat every case differently and, and have personal relationships with each player. And a few of them even mentioned that uh, you're a little bit ahead of your time. So let's go back to Wodonga Raiders. Um, firstly, let's go back to Wodonga itself because you grew up there, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, so my, my old man was a school teacher and he actually taught in New Guinea for the, the first three years of my life. I was up there in Garoka in the Highlands and we moved back to Victoria and then to Wodonga when I was about five years of age. And Wodonga was just an unbelievable place to grow up. I'm just so grateful for the fact that I grew up in a street where I spent a lot of time in that street, kicking footies, riding bikes, you know, riding bikes down to the creek, jumping off bridges into the water. Um, you know, just just had a great lifestyle. My old man bought a boat. We water skied a lot of a lot of nights. He was a school teacher. So you get out the Hume Weir and water ski until it was 8.30 at night in the you know, daylight savings and um, our house was right in the middle of town so I could ride my bike to the footy club, play cricket, tennis courts, basketball courts, played played water polo, did did every sport you could but just had this unbelievable independence. Um, and also, you know, you, it, it was tight-knit enough that you, you knew everyone. So one of the greatest memories about, you know, and I've always been a footy head was in town, you you were known by the colour you played for. So, Wodonga Sub Midgets had all the different colours, and for me, I was I went to the purples, um, which my family thought was pretty funny at the time. The colour purple, and I played for the purples, and we'd been easy beats for a little while, and um, we had a coach by the name of Bert Cadman who bought me my first ever pair of footy boots because because at the time I couldn't have, yeah didn't afford a pair, and the old man. Um, was going through some tough times and um, yeah so he bought me my first pair of footy boots and he, he taught me some things he gave me my nickname um, at the time and god bless him he passed away a couple of years ago but it was people like that that just gave you some great values growing up in Wodonga a lot of your sports coaches and um, so we went we went and actually did a Kokoda tour and there was six of us on it that, that wore Kokoda and we'd all played for the Wodonga sub midgets in 1977 and we all had different colours we played for purples golds greens blacks browns etc and so in the town you were known for which team you played for and so you were known whether you're an easy beat or you were one of the best teams in the comp and um but yeah my, my memories of Wodonga and growing up are really fond ones and I'm really lucky to have built some great mates during that period of time but I, I also just love getting back there as well mate that's awesome. That's an awesome start. What was the nickname? Oh, yeah. So when I turned up there, some of the kids, my old man taught, thought that his name was Harry Harris um, for whatever <laughs> reason. So they used to call me Harry and they thought it was pretty funny. Um, and then when I got to footy training, Bert Cadman said, I was about nine years of age and they said, oh, this is Harry. He's come down to play with us. And uh, Bert said, no, nah, he's not Harry. That's old fashioned. He's Harrow. So from then on, I've been Harrow ever since. 
That's awesome. And the Kokoda story. So how recent was that when you guys got together and did that? Yeah, so it was um, it was 2010. Um, so we, we'd sort of planned it for a long time. I, I lived with a bloke at, when I played at Golden Square and went to uni for three years in Bendigo. I lived with a bloke by the name of Craig Lafoe and, and we were into the war history and Anzac Day and we loved all that sort of stuff. And we'd always said, we promised to each other that at some stage we'd, we'd either go to Gallipoli, which we've ended up both doing at different times, or we'd, we'd do the Kokoda Trail and we did that as well. So he sort of organised and put the group together and six of us ended up doing it. And um, I was at Carlton at the time. Um, it was t- actually 2009, end of 2009. Yeah, I was at Carlton at the time and it was, um, it was an awesome experience. The war history was was massive. And so, you know, I'd, I'd drawn on a lot of that in my coaching over the years because, um, I, you know, I thought we were always lucky to be able to play a game of footy and, you know, couldn't imagine what it'd be like to, to, to know you were going to die on a battlefield pretty much, um, the difference in that. So, um, yeah, and I, I guess some of your elders had taught you things over the period of time. So... Yeah, the war history meant a lot to to us growing up, and um, to be able to experience some of that was was a great experience. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great great story. So, mum and dad in Wodonga. Is there brother and sisters around as well? So yeah, my my mum left home when I was about six or seven years of age. Okay, and she's still with the fella she left with, and it was me and my sister that were left, and my dad remarried, and. Um, he remarried a great woman, um, Marg Emery. Uh, Herbie's best mate at the time was Paul Emery. He talked with him and um, introduced him to his sister who'd just come back from travelling overseas and they hit it off. And so now I have a younger brother and sister as well. And James still lives in Wodonga and he's become my best mate. Uh, you wouldn't believe that 15 years apart, but we're, we're not great together, I don't reckon. <laughs> <laughs> the family aren't always too appreciative when we get together but we have a great time and and i've got another sister lisa that tanya and i did a lot of the growing up uh you know in those early years so we we shared the same things and then marg came along and um yeah so we've never thought of ourselves as half brothers and sisters and um at the same time we uh we we call marg our mum yeah that's awesome that's cool so everyone's on this journey of um doing all sorts of different things, like you said, the water skiing, different sports, um, and then now a whole different family dynamic, but still sounds like the experiences were, were worthwhile. You're a competitive man, uh, and everyone that I've spoken to mentions that, and I know that myself. Does it start in Wodonga on the streets, in the, the pools, or even on the, the jet skis, or the, uh, the wakeboards, or whatever, maybe they weren't wakeboards back then, but the skis and the, um, the boats, footy grounds, cricket pitches, did it all start out on the streets or was it just as competitive at home as well? Uh, no, look, in, in our street, like I can still remember, so I'm five or six years of age. Um, the Kilpatricks had three brothers in one corner of the, the um, street. Uh, the Millses just lived down the road who I end up playing footy with down the track. Um, the Shores were just around the corner and the Kimballs and so... I have this analogy that um, you know, uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna play footy and you're gonna win, it gets won in the street. And so, you know, you could be the kid that stays in the front yard or the backyard and watches what's going on, or you get out in amongst it. And it was a pretty rough crew in those days, and you'd always come in with skin off your knees and 
toes missing from bike races around the corner, around the around the block, and but it it was it was ultra competitive, but you you sort of you you just just loved it. Like the old man would you know he'd come out and yell out, "Come on, Darren, dinner's on the table," and you know it'd get dark and you'd have to get inside. But you know you were just you were just outside playing all the time and. In that era too, like we lived in the commission home, so it was pretty pretty rough. Yeah, you, you got belted up a few times, and it, it toughened you up. I, I was never much of a fighter. I don't think I ever threw a punch, but I got belted a few times. Um, you know, I broke my leg one day riding a bike, and one of the Kilpatricks come out and carried me home and put me on the kitchen table, and they took me up, and I'm sure enough, I had a broken leg. So. Um, but but it was yeah I, I think that's where you you learn a lot of your values you you weren't able to be um, a dickhead I guess <laughs> you learnt that pretty early on and I reckon that's carried through right to 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 the current day is you you know you got to be a good person and treat people well and um, yeah we did that's terrific so when you were a good football player when did you start moving away to play footy. Did you play senior footy young at Wodonga? Yeah, I um, I broke a collarbone in my... I didn't play many third, thirds games of footy. I'd come out of under-15s, played thirds for one year, broke my, broke my collarbone, got cleaned up by an Aubrey bloke. I was about... I would have been 15 or 16. I was probably about 60 kilos, if that. He'd clean me up, big bloke, and... Um, and so I didn't play thirds again after that. The next year I played in the, the reserves um, and that was 1985 under Cole Travaskis. And I debuted that year as a, I think, I, I don't know whether I was 16 or I just turned 17 maybe. And then the year after Geesh turned up and I, I played another three games in 1986. And then from 1987 onwards, I've sort of played senior footy um, under Geesh. So... We won a premiership in 1987 and, and they were just unbelievable times because it always looked up to these blokes in your town that played the best footy and you, they were just heroes to me. And all of a sudden I was running around with David McLeish and these sort of blokes that had played numerous AFL games and they were just your idols. So you, you're running around with them, the Bear Allens and, you know, um, David Turners and you're playing with your good mates you grew up with too. So that really meant a lot to me. Um, and then I started to travel. I went to, to uni for three years and played at Golden Square, then came back. And I, I guess my turning point in my life was probably 1991. I went home and had to move back in at home, couldn't get a teaching job, was doing some night shifts, um, you know, doing doing um, lotto rolls and got caught up with all my dodgy mates and, um, yeah, got into a fair bit of risky behaviour that year and, I won a best and fairest that year, but I, I I didn't do myself or the footy club justice. I was, um, yeah, I, I lost my way a little bit. My old man knew that. So at the end of 91, Jeff Geeshan got the job at West Perth and um, he rang Jeff Geeshan up and said, look, Darren's lacking a bit of purpose. He's not teaching and um, he's, you know, he's lost his way a little bit and I think he needs to challenge himself with his footy. So would you mind if he coming out of crack at, um, West Perth and so at the same time West Coast Eagles had rung me up and told me that they were pretty keen to draft me so I went down the path of putting all my eggs into going to WA and when the draft didn't work out I still went and joined Jeff Geeshan in um, in Perth and that that was the turning point in my life I um, 
you know, it, it was really hard for a year. I was in a pretty dark place in sort of 91, 92 and started to come out of it in 94. Um, but being away and my wife, my current wife came across with me and we both got teaching jobs and we had that real purpose and, um, yeah, ended up getting the captaincy in 95 of the West Perth Footy Club and from there on it was a, it was a really, um, I was really fortunate that the, the West Perth Footy Club turned up when it did. It was, um, and, and I got out, got away from um, Wodonga and had to grow up. It was, it was, um, yeah, really important to, to where I sit today. Can you pinpoint why that was happening at that time? Harry, like how old were you in 1991? So I'd, I'd finished, I was, I was 21. Um, yep. There was a few reasons. So I'd, I failed one subject at uni um, and it was because I'd probably put too much time and effort into to footy, uh, social life. Um, you know, I, 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 I didn't study as hard as I could, um, but I had the ability to be able to do it. I just didn't commit and um, science, believe it or not, was Friday mornings um, at nine o'clock and Thursday nights, I used to work at a nightclub and sometimes wouldn't get home till, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning working at Hot Gossip. And so I'd miss a lot of science on a Thursday morning and I, I um, failed science. I had to go back um, in 1991 and finish it off. So I used to get on a, a postal truck and uh, the postie knew me old man and he'd drive me over to um, Bendigo and then I'd get the postal truck back and it... I don't know, just just things like that, and all all my mates graduated, and I didn't. And um, at Wodonga, there was a, there was a bit of culture of you know, um, yeah, playing up. I'll I'll say that, and and we played pretty hard, and we 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 drank hard, and um, you know, I was at that stage where I I wasn't feeling that good about myself, to tell you the truth. So it sort of built over that period of year, the year, and um, in the end, I knew that uh, I probably wasn't living the values I wanted to live um, and wasn't being the person I wanted to be. So it was, it was time to get out and go and um, grow up. So do you think, well, it's more, not do you think, but more a question, and you've mentioned uh, your dad Herb a couple of times and we're going to touch on him when you get back to coach Wodonga, but did he let you go? Did he let you fall over your feet a little bit during this period and, and, um, and fall on your ass for use of a better term and, and live a little before he sort of helped you and steered you? through the path to get over to West Perth with Geish? Yeah, my, my old man never, never really said a lot. He, he wasn't a man of many words. He was a man of action. And he just lived, lived a life that was, was quality. He treated people really, really well. He enjoyed a beer. He enjoyed mateship. He was coaching when I was a young fella. So I was the kid sitting around the dinner table listening to him pick the team. And he built this love of footy and this love of life um, in me through his sense of humour and I, I think just watching him live and the way he lived was important and he was really distracted at the time. He's principal of a school, he's got two young kids, I've come to live at home. So he just trusted that that I'd find my way, I reckon. Um, he never really, you know, gave me any pep talks or anything, but little things that uh, like Ring and Jeff Geeshan and those sort of things, he, he guided me without telling me what to do. He let me own it. Um, I um I just admired him so much. He he taught me so he taught me to treat people really really well, and I feel like I've always uh, cared about people, and it's probably on the back of him as a role model. 
Yeah, it's a cool story. I think we lack, and you'd know yourself, as you go on with your coaching and you start to get presented with a whole different dynamic and, uh, and demographic of people um, and age. And there's a lot of helicopter parents out there now. And there's a lot of parents that are putting pillows under their kids so they don't fall or, um, or they're too much. And I think just that small little snippet you gave us about your dad and, and his guidance, um, you know, a lot of people should take a lot out of that if they're going to listen to this. And cause I definitely do listening to that now. It's a, it's a cool little story, mate. I reckon it, that's awesome. So he makes the call and, uh, and yeah, obviously have the relationship with Geishan who gets the gig at, at West Perth. Over you go. You mentioned your then girlfriend. Is that your now wife? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Gail. So Gail. So how does, tell us about that, mate. Talk me through the journey. Do you drive? Do you fly? What's the, what's the process in getting over there? Yeah, so um, I sort of had, you know, I had no real money. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a lot going on. I had a backpack and I decided I was going to go and have a crack. But I, I because of the, my self-esteem and where it was at the time and, um, you know, I was doubting myself a fair bit during that period because I was just in a bit of a negative headspace. Gail was the one that sort of said, come on, we've got to go do, do this. Let's go and have a crack at it. So her encouragement. Um, you know, got me going, but I went over for 10 weeks by myself in the pre-Christmas phase just to train and to get a feel for it. And I, I lived, uh, I lived with one of the, um, one of the supporters over there in his house with his family. And, and then um, the whole time I was, because I wasn't in a great space and I was trying to fit in, it was all new and I was away from home and it was uncomfortable. I was, I was ringing home a fair bit going, I don't know whether I can do this. Um, the footy club bought me a bike, so I was riding a bike everywhere. So I was getting pretty fit and um, and they got me a job teaching swimming, um, which I enjoyed uh, and it gave me something to do during the day. So I'd ride my bike, you know, 15 k's to work and teach swimming all day and 15 k's home and then training. And But I, but I was just trying to find my way. So... She was instrumental in um, going, no, come on, we've we got to have a crack at this. So um, as soon as she arrived and then we ended up in a house together, that's when it, it sort of started to, you know, become a pretty cool journey. Oh, that's fantastic. That is fantastic. So 91, I'm going to get this wrong. 93 or 94, they win the flag? 95, they won the flag. So not, yeah, so, so Geesh... Geesh um, you know, had a couple of Wodonga boys head over. Robbie West was already over there. He was playing for the West West Coast Eagles at the time, but West Perth was his home club. Um, Andy Collins and Vinnie Glass were over there. They were travelling and they were blokes that I knew sort of growing up. Um, Andrew Nichols went over to play. Uh, Stephen Murphy went over to play. So there, there was a few of us, um, yep. which which helped. And they came sort of post-Christmas, a lot of those blokes. Yep. Um and there was a couple that were already over there. So they sort of helped. But um, in 92, we, we, we won the first game and then we lost five or six in a row um, from memory. And then towards the back end of the year, Geesh had sort of cleaned out a few of the bit of the dead wood, I reckon, and started to change. Um, he, he had a group of blokes that were, were starting to be there for the right reasons. And... We won three of our last four games and they were against the top teams and you could feel this momentum starting to grow. Um, and then in 93, the two wooden spoon teams, um, 
yeah, ironically, one of those was Claremont. We played off for the Wooden Spoon in 92 and then we played off for the Grand Final in 93. And wow. Claremont won. Um, Claremont won the Grand Final in 93. So we were sort of on our way. And then we, we lost a prelim in 94 and won the, won the GF in 95, which was massive. What's state footy looking like in Perth at that time? There's some pretty big names you've just reeled off then. Um, and it's attracting good coaches, obviously. What's it like over there in that period? Yeah, it was it was awesome footy. I, I mean, Geesh did the right thing by me in that first year. I was a new player and I sort of, I, I probably didn't realise how fit you had to be to play um, WA footy. I'd always got by, I reckon, on, I, I trained hard and, and all those things, but I, I hadn't taken it to that elite level, that professional level almost of the way I trained. And so early on, I played played okay to start with and then, I struggled for a bit and then I got really fit. But he made me, you know, tag blokes like Wally Matera, who was a gun, um, Peter Miller, Sean Colbung. I played on a lot of really good waffle players um, and blokes that had AFL experience. And that sort of set me up for how fit and how tough the game was. It was, it was a quality competition. Um, you know, all your, all your AFL players went back and played in the waffle. Um, for their home clubs, or they were allocated clubs. So, yeah, it was um, it was a bit of a wake up call. It was it was a real step up. But once once I got really fit um, and started to get that real belief in myself, it, the, that type of footy really suited me. So Geeshan coaches you in Wodonga, and then he gets a gig at West Perth. Um, your dad already sounds like he's had a fair influence on you. From a coaching and a teaching standpoint, you are a teacher at the time. You're still teaching over there. Um, are you starting to think about coaching in that period, mate? Or if not, who is who or who are the other influences around that time that um, get you thinking about it? Or is it something that you sort of thought you would always do when you finished up playing? Yeah, it's a good question. You sort of you try to pinpoint it, but for me, it's probably just an evolution. You know, I watched the old man coach when I was young. Um, when I was at school, I coached the girls' cricket team. I coached my sister's basketball team. I went to uni and I coached the Golden Square under-16s. Um, by the way, we had 14 or 15 players. I used to pick up a couple of um, Greek boys from a fish and chip shop to play <laughs> that had never played to make up the numbers and we'd negotiate with the other team to even the numbers. And we, we came a draw in one game for the year. So it was a... Good learning curve that. I started to coach in 96 after I'd captained in 95, but playing and coaching was just ridiculous at waffle level. I'd got ahead of myself a little bit. I was looking for that next challenge. But then the next year I coached at, um, coached at Wodonga Raiders. So I think, I think um, it was the evolution. I think John Dimmer coaching me in 1995 where he got me to help pick the team and take training and gave me a whole level of responsibility by being the captain with the way he, he coached and empowered me, um, probably set me up to, to fast track it a little bit. So how do you get transitioned into being the, the coach? Is that your first head coaching role at West Perth? No, I coached Wodonga Raiders. Oh, so um, you went, okay. So we go, you go back to Wodonga after you play at West Perth. Is that right? Yeah, 1997. So one of my good mates, Jeff Valentine, I sort of said to him, I was keen to coach. And he said, well, let's go and have a crack at it. I'll come with you and do your fitness work. And um, we, were, we were thick as thieves, so still are. Um, 
he actually coaches West Perth now, so <laughs> we coach against each other, but we're still like family. Um, so he comes across with me, and yeah, I, uh, one of the big reasons I wanted to coach Wodonga Raiders um, was I wanted to get back. We, Gail and I were ready to get married, you know, we just got married, ready to have kids. Yeah. Wanted to be back around my dad and uh, mum and, and brother and sister and, and have our kids around our family. And um, my dad was a foundation member of Wodonga Raiders. They used to be Kagunya Footy Club, played out in the country. Then they moved into town and became Wodonga Demons and then Wodonga Raiders. And they'd never won a flag. And the thought of coaching a team that had never won a flag, um, other than in the Talangata League, never won a Nubbins and Murray flag, was a big pull. Um, so, yeah, they were, they were probably the reasons I headed back there to coach. So, as a playing coach, you bring some good talent back. Where are Redonga Raiders sitting at this point when you get back to them? What have they looked like for the last few years? You mentioned, was it the Talanga? How do you pronounce that? Talangata League. Yeah, and then, so you played in that grand final, didn't you? In 97 and 8 and 9. Yeah. Did you play in the one when you were a kid before? The, in the... Yeah, 1987 with yeah. Wodonga Bulldogs. They were the crosstown rivals. So... Uh, right. Right. Yeah. So then you come back. What do the Raiders look like at this point when you get back? They, they'd done a lot of good work, mate. They, they'd, they'd been easy beats for a long time. They'd sort of come from a country club tried hard to get admitted to the Ovens and Murray, which was a quality competition, really good competition. Like when I got back there, I think we won three or four Vic Country Championships in a row uh, under Bob Craig. So it was, a, it was a really good, it was the best country comp at the time. Um, and so they'd, they'd struggled for a fair few years, um, but then then they'd started to build. And, and when they built, like the, I think they'd, they'd played in a, I think they'd won a final and they'd played in a prelim potentially and that's as good as they'd done and um, they were just looking to go to that next level. So we were lucky. There was a lot of younger players and um, the administration there had built it nicely. So when I turned up, uh, it was in pretty good shape, mate. So playing coach at the time, did you have good people around you? How did you put the crew around you? Did you just do it off the cuff and... As it goes, wake up, get back home, get married, do the kids thing and all that sort of stuff. And football is a part of it. Or are you really serious about it? Is it something that you're looking to um, become a career path, getting into the coaching? Does it all start there, mate? Or is it more getting back home, solidifying your family life and doing coaching on the side? No, I was all in. I was, you know, this was the start of a coaching career for me. This is where I wanted to go with it. Um, So... Yeah, I, I gave it everything I had. Um, I taught part-time, um, got different jobs. Some some of them were full-time jobs. Some of them were, were just doing relief teaching. But teaching gave me the flexibility to, to leave school at 3.30 and 4 o'clock and get to the footy club. And I was I was just in. But I, I've, I did what I've done everywhere I've gone. I tried to make sure I got as many good mates and good people that I knew that I had relationships around me that I knew would challenge and support me. Um, so, you know, Jeff Jones was was um, became the toe cutter or chairman of selectors. Um, Darren Fraser was a bloke who I was great mates with and he, he coached the reserves and he helped me out as well. And um, Andrew Collins was someone who I went to school with and he became a football, um, a football manager. Um, I recruited Jeff Valentine over, um, Andrew Nichols, Vinnie Glass, 
Ant McIver, who I'd grown up with, um, Simon Bone I'd grown up with. So we had a lot of blokes that I was, I I'd had a lot of my childhood with and relationships with, uh, you know, through good and bad times together. And we knew each other really well. So um, I was really lucky in that regard. Uh, playing coaching in the Ovens of Murray will, will always be probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, pretty tribal, tough competition. And when you're the coach and you're playing, you, you got bashed up a fair bit. But I was lucky I had blokes like Heath Mooney and, you know, Jeff Valentine and Andrew Nichols and um, Scotty Headley and these blokes around that, that really looked after me. It's a fantastic story. It's, uh, it's interesting. I, I want to ask you about coming back as, as the coach because you'd left as a bit of a knockabout and, and Harrow, a bit of a lad, which you've sort of alluded to, and great friendships, grew up in the town. How hard was it coming back and being respected as the coach and how did you differentiate between being a mate and being a coach when I have spoken to the the guys leading up to this chat they all said you had a really good ability to differentiate between being a head coach being a mate and knowing when to pull that rein and have a really good laugh know when to have a beer but also know when to be serious and not be afraid to you know give it to one of the players right between the eyes no matter whether they were the best player in the team or some guy that was just trying to get around playing twos footy. So was that natural from the start, mate, or was that a skill set that you had to develop over time? Well, I think I think I'd just got a really good um, self-esteem from what happened at, um, you know, and a really good belief in myself and my leadership with the way, you know, Geesh and then John Dimmer and having success in the waffle. Uh, it, it gave me a lot of... Um, belief in my ability to, to influence and um, positively influence people and to help them, you know, cause, cause you know, a lot of, a lot of the leadership was given to me at, at, um, uh, at West Perth to, to be able to get in and, you know, really take control of that group. And I think, I think, um, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's a really balancing act. It's a, it's a really fine line. You walk up, in my first year, I, I gave it everything I had, but I tried to do everything. And I, I think I grew up in a coaching sense that first year, which is my first full year of officially coaching, because I tried to do everything. And in the end, what I did was I said, right, if I'm going to play, I'm going to be the captain. So when I walk over the line, I can't coach anymore. I'm going to have to trust the people on the sideline. So I basically handed over the, the coaching of the team on game day to make the moves and do what they need to do so that... I thought the best way I could um, help our team whiz, win was to play well as the captain and, and lead that way. So once I differentiated that, the difference between 97 and 98 was a, was a good one. But, yeah, I think, I think the idea was that I think in great footy teams and the way I'd been taught um, by my old man was that there was no real hierarchy. It didn't matter whether you were, you know, the, the, gun, the gun full forward or the water boy or the whatever of... I just never, never thought that anyone should be treated any differently, and you just played what you saw in front of you. And um, I reckon, I reckon those values that had been instilled me by, you know, when I talked about Bert Cadman and Bob Craig, and then Jeff Geeshan and my old man and John Dimmer, they they were just all people that just treated everyone the same. So yeah, it was um, it was it wasn't easy coaching mates and and knowing that bit of a fine line. I don't think I quite got it right in '97, but by the time we got to 98, I'd, I'd learnt to get the balance right, I reckon. There's a story about you 
I think, second a player or, or a, a board member or someone halfway through the year. Was it 97 or 98? Yeah, I, I, I still feel pretty bad about that. Um, you know, like the, the young coach that's probably a little bit insecure and trying to control things and run the show. And, you know, there was a player that um, at the time was bad-mouthing me a little bit behind my back and a um, few of the players weren't happy about it and they were my mates and told me. And so, I, you know, the, the season hadn't even really started and I asked him to leave. Um, and if I had my time again, I wouldn't ask him to leave. I'd ask him to come around for dinner yeah. um, and I'd find out more about him. I, I always feel guilty about, about that. Um, you know, there's players at the time that thought that was one of the catalysts to us winning a premiership and it, it put everyone on notice, but that's not the way I look at it in hindsight. Um, I think that was my ego getting in the way. Um, and so if I could have my time again, I'd have that bloke around and go, what have I done to upset you? Um, how can we build our relationship? But, you know, being, being a bit older and wiser, you know, those are some of the things you should have done. And, and even as an older, wiser coach, there's still going to be relationships and, um, you know, the, the, some of them aren't going to work and you just got to put your hand over your heart and feel like you've tried the best you can. And um, when you part ways, sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's better for both parties. It's a, it's a really good piece of advice and a good story for learning for aspiring coaches. And I think, you know, the, the target audience here, well, not just athletes and just people that want to get better in their own vocational sense but coaches aspiring coaches which is the reason why I wanted to get you on because your journey is a fascinating one and there's already so much gold at the moment that I never knew that you you're telling us about relationships and mateship and all that is a very big key to it but I hear it a lot I hear relationships a lot when I hear about good coaches but I want to dig into relationships Harrow and I want to know how do you how do you build them how do you build the good ones and what is actually put in place because it's not just about taking someone out for a coffee and tick box for me it's uh it's a it's a progression it needs to be natural needs to be genuine what have you learned over time in in getting them right and you just touched on then you're not going to get all of them right but as long as you know that you had a crack that's as the best you can do but as you're getting older and getting better in your coaching because you've been doing it for longer how are you finding the relationship building now to back then and, and some of the main lessons that you learned through that period yeah, I think I think a lot of it is is really just about time spent. Um, you know, I think I think of the why did Wodonga Raiders have so much success and win a flag in that time, and we have such a great time is because everyone just bought in and we we love being together. Um, and and that more time we spent together, like you know, we didn't want to go home after a game. We we wanted to hang around and have a meal after training, and um, you know, we're in a town where you got to spend this great time together and you run into each other all the time, but we just love being around each other. Um, and then the same happened at West Perth. The reason we ended up becoming really successful there was we were, we were socially very, very good as well as good as playing, you know, and we became, we cared about each other, you know, and I think, I think um, that dark period that I had um, was on the back of some of, you know, I've always been a people pleaser. I've always tried to, to make people happy and I've always worried about people liking me and those sort of things. And so, so as much as that was probably a reason I end up in a dark place, um, I go and get some, you know, some help around that and I learn more about myself. Um, and so I think, 
I think the key to all mateship and um, connectedness is is actually showing a bit of vulnerability. And I think I've I think I've been able to do that as I've matured as a coach. And I think I even did it back then. I I was happy to stand up and say in front of a group, I stuffed that up or, you know, I'm sorry I didn't play well today or I was shit ass today. I could have been better than that. And, and I think that human side of um, showing people that, that it's okay and I've stuffed up before and I've done this and, you know, just, just you know, being imperfect um, and showing your vulnerability allows people to connect with you. And I think if you I have a saying, if people that, that know boats, they know everything, I don't trust them. Um, and I, I usually don't build a great relationship with them um, because I don't think they let you in. Uh, there's, for whatever reason, the guard's up. But for me, I reckon I, I wore my heart on my sleeve a little bit and I let people see who I was and I was really driven to to want to succeed. So um, I think those things sort of combined to to allow me to to be close, not with everyone, but close with with key people that were able to drive the success of our footy clubs. Yeah, it's terrific. It's terrific advice, all right. So we are, well, not we, but you win the premiership. Before I move forward and ask you some more questions about trying to go through a bit more of a professional pathway with your coaching, what did it feel like, mate? Because you've come back. The town hadn't won one like you touched on in the R&Ms. I, I assume the family's there watching it back with the mates where you grew up. What was it like? Yeah, it was unbelievable. Like the end of 97, uh, I think I talked about the end of 97. I'd, I'd given everything I had and we'd lost the grand final by seven points. And I found myself, I, I had to walk out of the club rooms and I just walked off into a dark area by myself and in the shadows somewhere. And I just bawled my eyes out for for ages. I just couldn't get my shit together. And, um, and it was because of how much it meant to me and I'd poured so much into it. And that, that was actually good because I was able to go back in and just celebrate the fact that we played in a grand final and it was what it was and it wasn't the end. It felt like it was the beginning with, with the, this group. We still had some unfinished business. So, 98 just all came together beautifully and, um, you know, it didn't all go away. We lost our first final. We had to fight through the hard way. But when we won it, we went back to the footy club and I, in, this, in this environment we're in with coronavirus... You do a lot of cleaning up and finding old photos and you're doing a few jobs around the place. And I found this photo and it had my dad, it had his brother, uh, my uncle, and it had Paul Emery who would end up becoming my other uncle through the marriage of my dad to Marg. And the four of us are there and we've all got hats on and um, we're on the Raiders gear and we've all got a drink in our hand and we look as happy as you're ever going to look. And I found this photo and I remember that night it just was a sea of happy people. The first one, we no longer were just this easy beats across the road. Um, you know, we, we, we felt really, really good about ourselves. And, um, you know, and, and as a club, you know, we, we, we won reserves premiership. We won the Colts. We won the thirds. We won everything um, for a couple of years there. So we're feeling really good about ourselves. And it was just a really happy, great place to be. So... It, it's yeah it's um i was watching a movie the other night and I'd, I'd had a couple of drinks with the wife and we were watching a movie and i took off and i wrote on a pad and she hey, what are you doing what are you what are you writing there and i go oh just something in the movie twigged me and um it made me think why do i still coach 
and I went and wrote down because when you wake up in the morning after winning, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. And so I wrote down this on a bit of paper. And so when I get back to the players, it's something I want to share. Like in 87, when we won a premiership and I'm 18 or 19 years of age, that morning when I woke up, it was like king of the world. You know, you just, how good you felt, like the success of it. Um, and then because a lot of, a lot of hard work gets you there. And then I think back, I've been lucky enough to win seven flags, which is really, really lucky in my lifetime. But every one of those, you wake up in the morning when you've won and it is just an unbelievable feeling and I'm still chasing that. I think everyone's chasing that. I, um, I can, I can uh, yeah, I can comment for myself. We won a couple, a, year, a couple of years ago, we won one and, at the, I don't know how you feel about this, but my memory is in the moment at the time, it's a bit of a blur and it's really quick and the party's quite fast and there's so many, there is a sea of happy people, but it just goes in the blink of an eye. And that was in 2018. And even just the other day, my young bloke was the water boy in that game. And it was a pretty big blue just before half time. Um, one of my boys got knocked out and it was on and he was on the ground running water. And he told me a story that I'd never heard before about where he was what the people were doing around him, what happened after. And just, it's sort of the gift that keeps on giving. You, you bump into people and it's just an excuse to talk again. If you don't win it, I don't know if you can do that. Um, I had a couple of boys working in the town that I live in and they popped in the other day just to say good day. And we just end up talking about that week or uh, that year and just little stories that you forget or little things that you didn't even know about. It's the little gift that keeps on giving. And even like you just touched on then to, that photo would have been amazing, mate. Even looking at that now probably gives you more joy than what you had when you were in it. Um, what was the movie? It wasn't the blind side. You were watching for the 35th time in a row, was it? No, nah, no. Nah, it was... Um, oh, my mind escapes me at the moment. Um, <laughs> oh, it was about the car races. The, the two racing car drivers that... Um, when Ford beat... Ah, uh, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. It just took me. It was just like, bang, that feeling the next morning when you wake up. Like when we won it in 95, I woke up and I was at home and I just jumped straight in the car. I don't know whether I probably should have, but I jumped straight in the car <laughs> and drove to Vic Carboni's place, who was the bloke who used to strap my ankles um, every Saturday. And I went to his place and went in there. And then we didn't have mobile phones and whatever, but the Bush Telegraph got out. And all of a sudden, most of us around there having breakfast at his place. And it's quite ironic when I talked about Marg, who married my, my dad, um, Vic Carboni is now with my mum. So it's amazing the way things just go around and around and all these connections and whatever. So it's a pretty pretty cool thing now that, um, yeah, my mum and, you know, one of my great mates is uh, together. Yeah, it's an awesome story. It's such a cool story. So... During this period, mate, obviously, and it's not to be sneezed at, the R&M footy is really good footy. And uh, if you can coach in that at that standard of footy, even in today's day and age, you're a decent football coach. You know your stuff. But is there something picking away at you on that journey where you want to go to a higher level? Do you see yourself as trying to get into the, the AFL ranks or uh, VFL or Waffle Sample ranks as a head coach yeah. or assistant coach? What was the journey like from there? Because I think you go to the Academy, New South Wales ACT, after that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... Yeah, how'd, that come, so how'd that come about? Uh, look, I, I'm, I've always been pretty impatient, I reckon. I want the next win and the next challenge when I was younger. Like, So, I, you know, 
and, and I wonder whether they're the right things to do, but I, I think of where I've landed and I go, well, they probably are. Like, I, you know, I have three kids in three different states and move my, move my wife in a state four times and, you know, they, they, they went through a fair bit to do all that for my journey um, and, and, you know, it ends up you, you have to give a bit back and we're, we're a really happy family now and jump out of the AFL for some of those reasons. But when Wodonga Raiders win it, like you just wanted to win their first premiership and then you're going, okay, what's the next thing I want to do? I want to go back and coach West Perth. So I tried to get the job at the end of 99 at West Perth and they said, no, nah, we're, we're going to um, employ Andrew Lockyer as the coach and you're not ready and we don't think you're up to it. So I, I pestered and kept ring, ringing the New South Wales AFL. I knew there was some money going into that system and um, I thought the next step for me was to be able to teach footy better. I thought I'd come to a country town uh, a lot of mature players were ready to go, um, you know, really drove it um, and did some good teaching, I reckon, with what I'd learned at West Perth. But I wanted to know what it was like to coach a young kid how to kick a footy and um, how to teach him things. So working with the, the talent program in New South Wales for two years helped me with that. So you worked at an elite level with the state 18s and we won the New South Wales ACT, won the... 18s in 2000, um, beat Northern Territory late in the game. And so being an assistant coach of that with Rod Carter and um, Stevie Wright um, was really good fun. And then then I got the job because of that. I reckon it helped me get the job back at West Perth in um, 2002. Right. So then something you touched on just then, which I think some of the coaches that I know that will be listening to this uh, that are all over the country doing level three at the moment and they're prepared to to uproot their families and go because that's their their ambition that's what their aspiration is and to be honest I'd love to do that myself but four kids and you've got to weigh up a lot of things but you know selfishly and footy's a selfish business and anyone that says that it's not sort of kidding themselves I think because your first thought is oh I could do that job and it wouldn't matter whether it was in Sydney West Australia your first thought's you I could do that and then you go oh geez, do they, would they want to move? Would she want to move? How would the kids go? Talk me through that, Harrow, because it's something that you've lived through more than on, on more than one occasion. And for guys like myself that are young and up and coming, that are, and we think we're willing to do it. What's the advice for guys like us that are, are aspirational and want to go there? Because I would have thought it wouldn't have been very easy having those conversations and even doing it as well. Yeah, I was really lucky that, you know, for three years at uni, Gail and I were just great mates. So... Um, you know, we, we didn't get together until November of the third year of uni. Um, not that I hadn't been chasing her around for three years, but, um, <laughs> but we finally got together and she knew me warts and all. Like she used to drive me home from nightclubs and yeah, she, she knew me, she knew me inside out. So I think that real close friendship, you know, and the, the fact she pushes me in 91 to get over um, to Perth and then, you know, we, we decide we're going to go home and Wodonga's a good opportunity um, to raise our family and it's closer to her, mum and dad who are living in Melbourne. And um, the New South Wales one was, you know, we, we've sort of just, you just, when you got really young kids there, you focus. So moving to Wagga, you know, we'd had Molly and, and um, Gail was pregnant with Tig and um, we ended up having our second there. That's all pretty good. And we, and we, we, 
because we'd grown up in Perth and we'd had this group of friends that we'd grown up with when we won the flag in 95 over there, a lot of our young adult life and friends were a lot of those people that were still in WA. So all the shifts weren't um, real hard ones in those, those senses at that stage, but they were all negotiated and Gail just fully supported me. The, the real hard one, the real hard ones came when we went back to Melbourne um, when I got the job at Carlton, that was a really tough move. Um, but at the same time, we would take it was really tough for our kids. But Gail was really happy to get close to her family in Melbourne. Um, but when we when we left Melbourne to come back to Perth, uh, that was the real hard one. My family, yeah, I was I wasn't uh, the most popular bloke for a, for a year or so there, um, and it was really tough times. I had to to really work hard to. I guess, help make them happy and fit back in. I, I wasn't popular at all in that period of time, but where we sit right now, we all know that it was a, it ends up being a, a really good decision. We're really happy in WA with where we've ended up. But um, yeah, they're all negotiations and you're right, there's there's probably me being really driven and then getting to a stage where you go, no, no, it's not, it's not about me anymore. It's got to be more about my family and what they're doing, so Gail and her career and the kids and their schooling and, and yeah, yeah, that's why I got out of the AFL. Um, after seven years, I feel, felt like it was owning me. Um, I had a 12-year-old daughter and if I didn't step back from it and put more time into them, I, I felt like it, uh, it mightn't be a positive thing. So 01 to 08, you're in Perth because that consists of senior head coach at West Perth. Yeah, so and then you go so, into an assistant coach role. But firstly, you'd pestered, you'd obviously pestered them. Ninety nine, I think it was you said, and then ended up at the talent program in New South Wales. West Perth, does it come up again, or do they approach you for that job? How does that work? Yeah, they they approached me. They knew I'd put in for it. Um, Rob Malone, who I'd played in the ninety five grand final with, with was the the GM uh, or CEO. Um, and he had a lot of belief in me. I was his captain and, um, you know, the, the club hadn't done that well in the two years um, with the appointment they'd had. And so they were looking for a coach. And so I went from a full-time job in in Perth, um, in Wagga um, with the AFL, which I enjoyed and um, moved to WA for, uh, I didn't have any job, but it was $20,000 to coach. And, uprooted the family and moved back to Perth to, to take up that opportunity and ended up getting a three-day-a-week teaching job. Um, and, yeah, so coached West Perth from 2002 to 2005, which was, again, just a, a dream come true. I, I remember when I got the job and I turned up over there and drove straight out to the footy club and walked out onto the Oval and remembered what it was like to play there and looked back at the grandstand. I went, holy, I'm... I'm actually coaching this footy club now. Like it was just a, yeah, another, another dream come true, mate. Cause it was a team I was really passionate about. And now I got to coach them. So yeah, coached them in 2002, three, four and five. Yeah. I, I can, I can picture it now. Actually, I was only there for a year, but it's a beautiful, big open space. You can sit on the grass. You can sit in the grandstand. It's a nice size ground for footy. You would have been pinching yourself and, did you bring a few players with you as well? Some of the guys back from Wodonga? 
No, I didn't, mate. I um, not this time. So, because uh, no, Dustin, Burns, yeah, Dustin Burns was a bloke who I hadn't coached. I'd got him to okay. Wodonga Raiders. Yep. Um, and then he came over, but no, it was pretty much the homegrown crew. Um, you know, from from West Perth, they'd they'd had a really good era. You know, they'd won it in '95, won it in '99, um, and then we won it again in 2003. So it was that era of players that were pretty close knit and the next crew were coming through and yeah, it was, it was a good crew, mate. You coach successive grand finals and win it in 03 against Subiaco? Yeah. Yep. Tell us about that day. Yeah, it was, it was a great day. Look, 2002, we lose it. We get belted by East Perth who are aligned with the Eagles and they win their third in a row. Um, but we, you know, it was just a good effort to get there. 2002 taught us a lot. We were three goals down in, oh, 17 points down with five minutes to go in the first final, elimination final. And um, Trelevin, who played for Hawthorne, was playing for East Fremantle and they just kicked a goal to go 17 points up. And he said to Todd Curley, well, enjoy your mad Monday. <laughs> and Todd Curley just belted him, um, punched him <laughs> right in the head. And it was an all-in brawl. So... It was those days where everything's one-on-one, so you can manipulate the teams a little bit. So I put the two Curly brothers inside forward 50 together, and they both kicked a couple each, and we got up, um, which was quite amazing. Uh, and then we went and, and won the next final after being down against Subiaco. So really, we rolled into the grand final, and we're really lucky to be there and got belted by 10 goals. But the next year, again, it just all the, all the planets aligned, mate. We... You know, grand final day, we ended up with Quinton Lynch um, playing forward, Troy Longmuir playing forward, who kicked five goals. Mark Seavey was in the ruck. Stephen Coops was across half back. Um, we'd got Brad Murray over from uh, from Myrtleford. Um, he was outstanding. Kim Rigol, the ex-captain, had come back. Simon Duckworth had come back from the Eagles and was playing at full back, and he brained him. Um, we just had it, you know, Todd Curley had come back from the Western Bulldogs. It was a pretty amazing football team, mate. Um, and Todd Curley tackled um, Brad Smith at the start of the, oh, the end of the first quarter and he did his knee and didn't play for the rest of the game and he kicked over 100 goals and that was one of the catalysts um, for us. Brendan Fuster played for us that day too and played really well. Um, yeah, just just all came together, mate. Back then, it wasn't about alignments, was it? It was. Was there a draft? So if you got drafted to the Dockers or the Eagles, then there was another draft, wasn't there, where you got belted out to waffle clubs? Is that how it worked? Yeah. So um, in all that period of time when I played there, and then during this period of time, before there was a, a, a full alignment. Um, so there, there was an alignment that happened with. Um, East Perth, and then they went back to the original way of go back and play with your, your club. So you played with your local club that you came through in WA, and then there was a reverse draft if you were recruited from interstate. So Robbie West comes over, West Perth have the first pick, and they go, we pick Rob West out of the draft pool that had been drafted to WA from interstate. Yep. So, yeah, so that's how it worked. And we just ended up with, you know, all these players on that day um, playing for us, young and ready to go, and you know they were just just outstanding. Um, and yeah, it was a, it was a 
it was an unbelievable win. It was only about 18,000 there that day. It was, a, it was a really low crowd because it was raining and wet. And, but, yeah, it was a, a really emotional day, personally, to, to win that. How come? Oh, it just meant so much. You know, like you put a lot into it. But, yeah, you know, this is a footy club that had seen a lot in me and, you know, made me the captain and then made me their coach. Um, I felt like I owed them a lot and, you know, the year before was, was a tough year and then you, you work really hard through it and um, it didn't come all easy to us all year but um, it, it came together well at the end and I just felt so proud, um, proud of the boys and proud of our footy club and, yeah, I, I just I lost my shit after the game actually on the ground. I just couldn't stop crying. Uh, does it come back to maybe them knocking you back initially and then you having to go away and, and add to the skill set, then, you know, they come back to you and then you go from there. It's a, it's a pretty cool story. I can probably see how it wouldn't be better or less than, but it'd be very different to the Wodonga Grand Final in terms of the emotions and the, the importance, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's funny. They're, they're all... They're, they're, it's like I've been lucky enough to be an AFL um, assistant coach and be in that coach's box and... You know, like, none of them, like, when you break it all down, um, when, you, when you're playing them, they're different than when you coach them. Um, there's no doubt a difference there. But the, the pride and the, like, the, the actual feeling across them all is, is for me, is, is very similar and very much the same. I think, I don't think the fact that I didn't get the job and I had to go to Wagga and do those two years had an impact on it. I just think I'd, I just really, really loved that footy club. And whatever club you're in, if you buy in and love it, um, which, which I, I, I feel like I've done everywhere I've gone, if you really love that footy club, when you have success with it, it's just so good to share it, you know. And yeah. um, that, that's, that's part of the reason, you know, we're in the game. Um, you know, push yourself hard to be the best you can be. Um, and... You know, if you're lucky enough and get that success, it is, a, is an amazing feeling. Well, you only spend one more year there because you're impatient, as you said earlier. So during this period, mate, were you in contact with any AFL clubs at that stage and, and trying to get on a, a list to be an assistant coach? And if so, how are you going about that? Yeah, I, I, I did the same thing. I, I kept ringing Chris Connolly and um, John Warsfold and... Chris Connolly had me in his coach's box and let me stay there for a week, which was great of him at the time. Did you know him? Did you know him, Harry? Or did you just co-op? Uh, only by introducing myself and go and have a coffee with him and yep. um, just staying in contact regularly. And, yep. you know, some of them were, you know, like, g'day, how you going? And there'd be a bit of silence and whatever. Or you want to catch up for a coffee and I'd talk a bit. And, there, you know, it was just a matter of trying to build a relationship with those blokes because I knew that they were going to be decision makers on if I was going to make it at the next level. But I also wanted to pick their brains and watch them train and learn so that I could coach better at West Perth and, and win there. I, I, um, at, the end of two, uh, at the end of 2004, West Coast asked me to apply for the job and I rang a few blokes and I asked and, um, you know, what I should do and what to expect. And I went in there and I completely stuffed it up. I tried to be someone I wasn't. Um, and walked out of there just going, well, that was ridiculous, you know. Like, why was I trying to be this AFL coach that, you know, why wasn't I just myself? And 
for a year, I beat myself up a little bit about that. Then they asked me to apply the year after and I thought, stuff this, I'm going in and I'll just be who I am. And um, it's amazing how it works when you can't get yourself wrong and you're just who you are that you, you get looked after. So um, it was a really big lesson for me and it's a, it's a message I have for, for coaches these days is you can't get yourself wrong. So, you know, that, that first interview was just, I'm, I'm embarrassed to think about it. Um, and the person I was trying to be and not being myself. Um, and then the, the second time around, just letting it all hang out. Um, and, you know, they challenged me in the meeting about what I'd done with their players during the year. And I was really honest about it. And I think those things helped me get the job. Yeah, it's a great, great uh, piece of advice, mate, being genuine. And you can't get yourself wrong. That definitely has to be a note to be taken down. I know I'm going to take that down. So... You get in there, mate, you get the nod, and then you're part of a, a West Coast team that is just dynamite, absolutely dynamite at the time, and you're involved in... we involved in both grand finals? That, uh, nah. Nah, just the one? Yeah. So yeah. I got the job just after they'd, they'd lost in 2005. Yep. One of the first things John Warsfold made me do, which I really appreciate now, is I ha obviously had to learn the technology. So how to use sports code and cut edits and all those sort of things. Because for me, I used to go into Channel 7 with a West Perth bloke and, you know, get the two VHSs or the beaters together and, you know, put something together two or three times for the year for the players. There, were, there wasn't a lot of video going yeah. on, but when you got to the AFL level, they had a lot of resources. So had to upskill pretty quickly. And he asked me to review the 2005 grand final and tell me why they lost. Uh, tell the coaches why why they lost. So that was pretty daunting <laughs> first job to do. But I I watched it all and I I said I gave them the reason. Um, There's a couple of couple of reasons why I reckon they lost um, in 2005. And what did you say they, to him? <laughs> I said there was a couple of soft efforts late from a couple of players that I reckon was the difference in the game, and yeah. I showed them the the efforts and. Um, they agreed. Did you get an so, opportunity to to present that to the players themselves as well? Nah, thank God. <laughs> I didn't want those blokes to not like me straight up. Um, but I'll, I'll never forget those early days, though. Like, it was quite intimidating for me, boy from Wodonga, sitting at a table with, you know, John Orsfold, Tim Jepp, um, Peter Sumich, uh, Robbie Wiley, you know, Tony McHale. Um, Trevor Nisbet um, would be involved yeah. at times, so it was it was really uh, really challenging. Um, and I remember Peter Sumich said to me after about two months, I you know I got involved in a meeting. Goes, thank God for that. We thought you didn't speak, but I was just taking it all in and learning, and you know didn't want to say too much early on. But there was also an expectation that we've got you to do a job, mate. It's about time you started joining in. Um, yeah. Yeah. So once they challenged me and, and and the back half of that season was was as good a coaching team, good a coaching involvement as I've probably ever been involved with. We we just got it together. We were doing some things that were above and beyond. We were really, really um, supportive of each other and um, challenged each other. And it was just a, like, just a great, great experience. Um, you know, look, I happened to do my first ever player meeting in front of, the player group and in the front row, Ben Cousins was sitting on the bottom of one row 
and Michael Gardner was on the bottom of the other. And those two ran the footy club, really. Yeah. Uh, and I remember they challenged me early on about something that I was presenting. Um, we used to do this thing called Open Wings and I was challenging, challenging them at the time that too many blokes were getting into this workspace. Yeah. And Michael Gardner and Cuz looked at each other and said, that's bull, you know, what are you talking about? And challenged me pretty hard. And I was really lucky that I'd coached a couple of those blokes at West Perth and I said, well, what do you, what do you blokes reckon about what you see there? You know, and I was lucky I'd, I'd asked the question. Um, if I'd tried to answer it and take control then, I reckon I might have been in for a bit of a tough ride, but Quinton Lynch filled the the the, um, the the void for me, and he answered the question. He goes, "Well, from what I see, we have too many blokes getting in that workspace." And then I was away. Yeah, I owned it, um, and from there on, um, like the first year, you know, first half year was pretty challenging. Um, we had a dysfunctional, so-called dysfunctional forward line. Um, but we had a role to play and um, so I had to fight hard for a lot of those players all year and I think the only week I didn't cop it from the media about, or we didn't cop it as a team from the media about being a dysfunctional forward line was the week after we won the grand final. <laughs> so you looked after the forwards obviously? Yeah, I looked after the forwards and, um, you know, we had... Quinton Lynch, who, you know, was just a, a warrior, um, worked really, really hard on his game, you know, kicked kicked 12 goals in finals. Um, you had Ash Hansen at centre-half forward, who, again, was just workmanlike, um, had been dropped leading into the finals and then, you know, had 10 contested marks in the final series and really played his role. You had Rowan Jones, who, you know, was just, again, workmanlike, but his last effort in the grand final helps us win it. Um, you know, so, but but then you throw in Andrew Embley, you know, starts in your forward line. Ben Cousins starts in your forward line. Um, David Weirpunda started in your forward line. Daniel Chick came down and played in your forward line. So we, we, we had some okay players running, <laughs> running around. Dean Cox rested there at times and um, big Mark Seabe. And so, yeah, it was really blessed to be able to be involved in that year where you win one and just watch them train and the way they went about it um, and then and then to win it was, was quite amazing. And then, you know, the next couple of years to go through some of the cultural challenges were, were great learning experiences as well. How does a, a coach that hasn't played league footy, although you were close, as you mentioned earlier, West Coast were having a look and played a really high standard of waffle footy. As a coach, and you've spoken about your self-belief and, and your self-confidence, and you've reeled off some of the better names that have played league footy in, in one of the better teams that we've seen. Um, even getting ready for meetings, quarter time, half time, pre games, how are you prepping yourself to talk to players like that and getting them on board and getting them bought in? Because I can assume that for a lot of aspiring coaches that haven't played at the level or and potentially are, you know, I guess no names really, to talk to players like that and and get the get them to buy in. How did you go about it in those in those periods? Yeah, I think again, uh, I link it back to probably some of my experiences to get to that that level. You know, like I'd coach my own teams, etc. So I'd coach the egos that I had to you know work really hard with, and all those sorts of things. And there's there's no doubt that John Walsfold and Peter Sumich's endorsement of me probably halfway through the year when they. 
you know, we used to do our uh, forward line meetings and our midfield meetings together with Summer. And so I'd present intermittently. And then almost at the halfway mark of the year, they go, no, we trust this bloke and he's got it now. And we'd split and I'd be able to, to work with the forwards by myself. So it, they, they, they built me in nicely. And my job early days was to build relationships with the players so that they trusted me. Um, and, and early on, there were some players that really, really challenged me. And, um, you know, I had to get their buy-in. But that's just, again, it comes back to the basics around time spent, caring about them, doing the work with, getting them in early and doing the extras with them, show, you know, letting them run the show uh, a lot of the time, but not letting them get out line, outside the line of, of what the coach and what the team needed and staying strong on that. Like, I'll never forget, you know, like, Ben Cousins was so, such an, an unbelievable leader. Like, we, we win a prelim um, at Footy Park after being down at half time, but half time, he sits in the room and he eyeballs every player and every coach in the room and he looks at them and he nods and he winks at them and he says, We got this, we got this. And that, he, I'll never forget it. He, he mesmerized me and they went out and won it. And, he, he was amazing like that. But leading into the grand final, um, you know, you, you build a relationship where the team's doing the warm-up and he spent about 10 minutes with me at the, the point post trying to convince me how to select the team because he knew match committee was that day. And, <laughs> and he wanted me to, to go in and give his vote. And I argued pretty strongly with him about a few things. I said, no, I don't see it that way. And... He challenged me, and but after the we win the grand final, um, he's the same bloke that comes and grabs you and hugs you really tight on the ground and makes you feel like he, he was an unbelievable leader. It's it's a shame that he ended up going down the path he did, but you know some of the lessons I learned off him about on-field leadership and, and those sort of things were were significant. So I guess what I'm saying to answer your question is it just takes time and you spend that time with them and you show them you care and you put time into trying to help them make, make them be better players. And, you know, there'll be a certain amount that'll go, yeah, really loved him and he helped me. And there'll be a certain amount that'll go, probably didn't help me. And, you know, that that's coaching. Yeah, it's a, it's fascinating. And as we get to this part of the chat, I'm a little bit, um, I'll say bemused a little bit because, but then I'm not surprised because of the, the impatience that you spoke about. But at the moment, if I'm painting a picture correctly, Gail's happy, young kids in Perth, coaching at the best club in the country at the time with the best talent. Um, if he wasn't a Brownlow medalist, then he was about to be leaning up against a point post, talking footy, starting to really find yourself as a coach and be uh, in a great space. You're on the move again not too long after, aren't you? Now, is that your choice or is that a club choice? How do you get to Carlton as a, as a development coach under, I think, Brett Ratton in his first year? I got sacked um, after about round six. Um, so, Wusher and I were great mates. We ran together all the time. And yep. um, at the time, the, the club was obviously going through some, um, going through a lot of, uh, cultural issues and they're on the change and on, on the move and so they had a board meeting I, I don't know what happened the board meeting I didn't even know there was a board meeting I was just focused on coaching the footy team I'd run with Woosh that morning around the, the tan 
and I'd got back in my little maroon Nokia. I had about 20-odd messages on it when I got back up to my room on the Saturday morning, and a lot of them were phone calls from my wife. Yep. And I rang her and said, what's going on? And she goes, oh, you've been sacked. And I said, no, I haven't. I just ran with Woosh. We're playing whoever it was that day. And um, she said, no, you have. Your name, your, your photo's on the back of the paper with gone written on your head. And so there was an article. So I straight away went out of my room and went up and knocked on Woosh's door and said, mate, have I been sacked, mate? And he said, no, nah, no, you haven't. So someone in their you know, in their wisdom had um, leaked it and it had got out into the papers and there I was on the back of the paper. And then um, after that, uh, Woosh asked me to put in a proposal over the next six weeks about what I should do at the footy club. So I, I did that. Um, I said, I, you know, I wanted to continue to coach. Um, coaching was really important to me. I didn't, you know, that's where I saw my myself and my passion. And so he said there wouldn't be a position with you and I asked him why, and he said, the reason why, mate, is we've got Michael Voss as the... He's going to come over and be one of our coaches, so there's no position for you because of that. Um, and then, ironically, I'm on my way to the Mad Monday uh, at the end of the season, and on the way there, being dropped off by Gail, um, it's on the radio, and Michael Voss has taken the Brisbane Lions job, so... Turn up at the Mad Monday, and <laughs> there I am. And um, but I spent that. It gave me a good lead in to to spend a lot of time with the the AFLPA, um, and okay. I'll always be indebted to them. They were outstanding in that period of time. So uh, Neil Danaher, who was a you know who was a mentor of mine at the time, and I'd spent a lot of time with, and then Danny Frawley, um, those two blokes really helped me out and were great to me. Um, and in my transition and so you know I worked with the, the AFLPA psych and you know got my resumes together and and Woosher to his credit um, rang three or four coaches and I had three or four jobs that I could have taken yeah. in Melbourne and I decided I'd go with Carlton Chris Judd was there who I had a relationship with and um, I just I just thought um, you know they were on the rise and Managing a development program and being involved in a VFL program, I thought um, fit my skill set pretty well. Yeah, it's amazing. Was there an opportunity to stay at West Coast even though Voss didn't end up coming over? No, I think I think the bridge had been burnt by then, mate. Um, yeah. So, you know, and I, I, I guess I the only regret I have is that I never got a whole lot of information like you do coaching. Um, assessments and Woosh had given me my highest coaching assessments which were done by him and a couple of other people and um, you know I, I thought it was going okay and I, I was feeling you know like we'd been to South Africa earlier in that year but you, you just don't know um, all the politics and what goes on um, behind closed doors and at a higher level and you know one of my regrets is that I didn't really chase the real feedback as hard as I could at that time but picked myself up and um, had enough belief in myself and um, went and had another crack at another job so that I, I didn't want to leave the AFL on those terms. I wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, from a belief and self-esteem point of view that I went away and, and worked hard and had another crack at it. You spent four years there and become head coach of their VFL program. Was that the Preston or Northern Bulldogs? Had they transferred over? What were, what were they back then? 
Yeah, one year Northern Bullet. So the first two years, I turned up and my <laughs> I get the job as a development coach, and my my three staff members that I had to work were, work with um, were Robert Harvey in his first job as a development coach. Yep. So, yeah, I'm going to really tell him what to do. Um, <laughs> David Teague who, um, and, and Matthew Capuano. And those three blokes were just, we became really, really tight. Teague was a great coach of the Northern Bull Ants in those two years. He got him to the grand final two years in a row. Loved working with him. Um, you know, rang Whoosh and actually said, mate, you should get this bloke to West Coast. I think he'd be really good. And um, I think Teague followed that up and ended up over at West Coast. And Rob Harvey obviously went back to St Kilda and then Collingwood, but loved loved working with those those three blokes. It was fantastic. And when Teague left, um, I put my hand up to not only be the development coach, but coach the VFL team and absolutely loved coaching the Northern Bullions. They were a great club, great people, um, was really, really pure. So long hours, which burnt, probably burnt me out in the end. Like you'd work at the AFL club all day until about five o'clock, everyone would go home. Then you'd go and start your job with the, the VFL team. So long hours, you know, runner or bench coach with the, the league team and then coaching the VFL team and on match committee. And it was it was pretty full on, um, but but loved it, loved it. Yeah, there's a little part in there that oh, has stuck with me, and I've got to ask you. You've just come out of that West Coast experience, but even a year or two later, you still had the, I guess, humility to call uh, Worsfold up and and provide potentially. Well, now he's the head coach of the Carlton Footy Club, and back then was a young up and coming coach in his own right. To have the, I guess, the relationship still with West Coast people to do that speaks a lot about yourself, but also, you know, maybe there wasn't you know, too much bad blood between the pair. Would that be right? Yeah, Wush and I remained mates. We, When I got back to Perth, I was feeling a bit of isolation. Got out of the AFL, was doing some leadership work, um, coaching my young fellas' footy team, coached the state team, so I had some footy involvement. Um, but Wush, um, Wush had just sort of finished up and was finding out what he was going to do next too. So we started a running club and, I organised a few of the old boys. We called ourselves the Cobbers. And we, I decided that for my mental health, it was going to be important that I started the week on a positive note. So we used to meet at 5.45 in the morning at um, Trigg Beach um, at the cafe there. And we'd run to Sorrento and back. So Wush and I ran, you know, together for a couple of years. And the Cobbers is still sort of hanging in there. <laughs> There's a couple of us. <laughs> Keep broken down, but we're we're still good mates, and there's still odd, the odd Cobbers comment, which which Wush is still a part of. So, yeah, it was I never never took it completely personally. Um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I, don't, I don't know whether Wush was exactly happy with the way it all all was handled, but there's no doubt he was a part of it. But I don't know if you if you hold on to those things for too long, they probably consume you. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So. It's fascinating, and I don't want to skim over the, the Carlton or the Northern uh, or the Preston Bull Ants experience, but what fascinates me is your love for coaching and the football environments and the people and the relationships, the mateship. I'm fascinated that you say you sort of, like, was it delusional that you just said that you, when you went back to Perth? Not delusional, but isolated, was it? Yeah. How do you get, how do you get back to Perth, A, and B, you're going to a role at leading teams. I'm, um, I'm interested to know this pathway and journey 
Yeah, look, I, I guess for what happened for me at an AFL level is when you're in country clubs and waffle clubs and there's, there's definitely um, politics involved. There's no doubt about it. There's, there's parts of it that are, you know, pretty full on. And, um, you know, I, I, found, I found at West Coast and at Carlton that there were people that were, you know, obviously at their time trying to do the absolute best they could, but it becomes quite political and people jockeying for spots. And, you know, so I think the best teams have this enormous trust and they do it really, really well. Um, the teams that, that don't have the trust and there's, you know, there's uh, different egos banging heads and so, you know, factions and things that happen can happen in an AFL club because people are trying to climb the tree. I, I, that, that never really sat well with me. I've, I've struggled with a lot of that, so I'd remove myself from it, um, which probably wasn't a great thing at, at different times. I probably should have stood up and gone, well, why are you saying that? Or been stronger but um, you know at times I guess I was but at times I wasn't so I, I found all of that um, hard to take at times I guess I, I just wanted to be pure and enjoy it and the love of the game and play footy but you know at, at Carlton for example you had a 14 man board um, you had ex-players you had you know you had, the, the, the Carlton was a big club and I was just a development coach so, you know, I, I struggled a bit with all that dynamic going on um, that it couldn't be just, aren't we all in this together? Like, aren't we all got each other's backs? And you'd find, you, you'd find yourself in conversations you didn't want to be in. And so, for me, it just became, like, I just, I decided that my family was more important than, than chasing that dream of potentially being an AFL coach at that time. So, um Leading teams was was an opportunity for me to, again, learn more about empowerment, learn more about how to lead a team and, um, you know, how to facilitate and, and manage that. So I'd been a teacher, I'd been a coach, and I was pretty keen to learn to be a facilitator. When you get to leading teams, does it reinforce your philosophies and beliefs up to that point? Or is it is it a little bit of a... And eyes wide open where you were thinking, geez, how long has this been going on? And this can really add to my coaching. And um, I'm not too sure how many years you did it for, but did it? Did you get the bug back to go and coach again after it? And what was leading teams like? How did you get into it? Was it through Ray McLean? Was it through a different um, contact? Yeah. How did it all come about? Yeah, Ray McLean was the, the, the leadership consultant um, at Carlton when I got there. Okay. So I built a, built a relationship with him. Um, and then, you know, said, look, um, I'm thinking that I might want to go back to Perth at some stage and would you think of putting a business over in Perth? Um, and he was, so um, he gave me an opportunity and, you know, like I learned, I learned a hell of a lot about myself in that role, you know, standing in front of corporates, um, presenting a model, um, et cetera. But, but the, the, the whole time, this isolation thing was big for me. Like I've, found myself back in Perth sitting at a kitchen table without really um, a lot of involvement with a team as such being based in Perth. And you go into a team and you work with them and you're trying to be part of that team. But at the end of the day, you're the facilitator. Yeah. You're setting the leader up to lead. And I just missed all of that, all of the mateship, all the things that I'd been around since I was five years of age. Yeah. 
I all of a sudden didn't have. But at the same time, there were some real positives to come out of it. I, I learned a lot about leadership. Um, I learned a lot about what I believed in with regards to what great teams look like and what they should do. Um, I realised that the relationship piece was even more massive for me and the way I thought about things. Um, and then I got to coach my son's footy team. Like, I'll never get that time back again. I got to coach him and all his mates. I loved it. I tried to do the best job I could for them and get them to love footy. Yeah. I coached the Waffle State team for a couple of year, years, which was bloody awesome. Really enjoyed it. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I just could not get rid of the bug. I had to get back to coaching. And um, my great mate, Jeff Valentine, who knew a lot about me, could see my you know, lack of connectedness, I guess, with people and the fact that that was having an impact on my mental health again. And, and uh, I wasn't overly happy being isolated um, in WA without a team as such. Um, got a couple of employees over here and tried to make that work. But at the end of the day, uh, I realised, um, in a nutshell, I'm a footy coach. So yeah. I went back, went back and did it and had the hard conversation and didn't like the way it all ended, but um, I guess I had to do what was right for my family and myself. Was Claremont the only option and did they approach you? Did you approach them? What does all that look like coming out of leading teams? I, I knocked back jobs as soon as I got back to Perth. Um, yeah. You know, at a, a few different clubs, there was, you know, there was opportunities to coach and I kept not on... I've got to put all my mind and all my time and effort into coaching, um, um, into leading teams and building this business um, and doing the right thing by that. Um, and then I got persuaded to coach the state team. Yep. Uh, and that sort of got me going again because I had to go and watch footy. I had to start to build relationships with players and coaches. We played South Australia. It was a cracking game. We had a cracking side. It was a, an amazing football team we played that day. Corns coached the other team for South Australia. We were five goals to one down. We got up, we won well, and it was like, oh dear, here we go. The bug's back. So I did that again. I did that again the year after, and we won again. And it was like, oh no, here we go. Um, knocked back another couple of jobs, and then again, Jeff Valentine, like I said, said, "Mate, Claremont Footy Club's the club to coach. So get in and have a crack at it." Yeah. Um, and I did. Why are you knocking jobs back? And who are they? Who's, who's offering you jobs that you're knocking back? Just, just waffle teams wanted to catch up with me and, and wanted me to, to potentially coach and um, were pretty keen on me to do that. So um, I just, you know, I I told Ray and the, the business that um, I wouldn't do that and I'd be, I'd be committed to, to building the business for them and, and I did that up to a point where I just felt like uh, it wasn't the place for me anymore. Um, it, it, it wasn't a fit. So, um, and coaching was. So, jumped out of it to, to get back into what I'm doing. 100%. Um, what I meant by that as well is there are waffle clubs knocking at your door, even though you are putting all your time and energy into leading teams. At this stage of your coaching, there's a little bit of advice I was given a few years ago. Don't just take the job for the sake of taking the job. Like, just because it might look like a, a, a sexy job to do or one, the one that you've been going for, it might not be the right one. Do you think a younger Darren Harris might have jumped at the opportunity if these clubs are knocking at his door, but now a little bit more experience and, um, I guess, 
taking the time to sit back and look at a, a club holistically and maybe look at their culture, what they're about. Did that make the decision easier to say no in that sense as well? I saw, like leading teams aside, I know that's important, but did you have a better sense of where you wanted to go and a better understanding of how footy clubs were running and what you thought they were about? No, look, the, the real reason was I, I jumped out of working so hard at Carlton for those two years where you're doing development coaching, you're coaching a VFL side and you burnt yourself to the the ground yeah. with how hard you worked and, and what you put into that yeah. is that I'd, I'd neglected my family. So if I take a coaching job on, I'm not coaching my son's footy team. I'm not home every night. I'm not allowing my wife to study. She's a clinical psychologist now. It was her time to shine. It was her time to do what she needed to do. Yeah. Um, I could put time and effort into my kids, drop them off at school, pick them up. I, I loved all that. And, and that, was, that was the real reason why it was easy to say no. Um, to to coaching jobs, but then your kids get older, your wife gets a job, she's doing what she's doing, um, and the timing changes again. It's like they don't need you as much. Um, so you have a conversation, you go, look, I, I really want to be happy again, <laughs> which <laughs> me is being around people and coaching, and are you okay with that? And you negotiate it, and the family goes, yeah, we want you to coach, and they're, they're heavily involved in that now. They love it. So... It's a, it's a nice thing to share again. Yeah, it's awesome. It's such a cool story, Harrow. We've had you for over an hour and a half or whatever is it now. We could probably keep on going, but um, we're speaking of family. Mine's in the other room waiting patiently. Uh, it's been a fantastic chat, but I don't want to wrap it up straight away. I want to let you finish it off by some advice for the, the listener, not even if they are a coach or an athlete or just someone that wants to get better in their chosen field. Your advice in chasing and pursuing a career. And it sounds like to me, you don't roll out of bed to do your job. You roll out of bed to do what you actually love. And you've done that for a long time and people would envy that. Uh, what's your advice for, for the listener on, on getting to where they want to get to? Um, before I took my first coaching job, I rang Jeff Gieschen and I said, mate, I'm going to put in for a job. Have you got any advice for me? And he said, what's your philosophy on coaching? And I said, what do you mean? What's the philosophy? <laughs> What does that look like? like? I haven't even thought about that. And he goes, well, ring me up again when you've written down all the reasons you want to coach, why you want to do it, what's important about it and what you're going to stand for. And so I went away and did that. So the, the, the first thing you've got to do is what are your values? Who are you? Why do you want to coach? Because that, that advice, again, about you can't get yourself wrong, it's your guiding principle. Your values and who you are and what you believe in are your guiding principle. Now, you can shift a bit here and there and be influenced. But fundamentally, if you know who you are and what you stand for, it's, it's a great guide. It's a, you know, it allows you to make decisions and you know, you're going to stuff them up and that, that's okay. You learn from that. But that's the starting point. Um, I think then... As a younger coach, I've got to do a bit more of this again, um, I reckon. But ask good questions, you know. Get people to mentor you. Um, annoy the hell out of people. Find out as much as you can. And, and the things that really resonate with you, add them to your kit bag, you know. Get to, get to add them and, um, you know, and, and your toolbox becomes stronger and you, you learn more about yourself. Um, I think the, the other great thing is if you're going to be a coach and you're going to coach your own team, let your support staff and your leaders and that, let them do their jobs. You know, set them up for success, let them do their jobs, help them to do their jobs. You don't have to do everything. Um, so you have to be pretty comfortable in your skin because you're going to have to let some things go. And, 
and, and let people do things. Um, you know, right back to Herb Harris and the school teacher and Bert Cadman buying me my first pair of footy boots. The, the, the other real key bit of advice, you, you've got to care about people. You've got to absolutely, genuinely care about people. And if they think they don't, you don't care about them for whatever reason, they're not going to play for you. Um, and you'll get it right sometimes and you won't. But it doesn't mean you can't come back from it and, um, you know, put more time and effort into a relationship that needs to, needs to be done and take responsibility and own it. Like, I think you lose. It's, it's not your player's fault. It's, it's not your president's fault. It's not anyone else's fault. You lose. You're part of a team. So you stand up. You take responsibility for it. You own it. And it's not the end of the world. It's a game of footy. You plan for the next one and you get up and you go again. Um, I'm leading, reading a lot at the moment about the Stoics um, and absolutely loving it, absolutely loving it. So um, the obstacle is the way, uh, ego is the enemy, um, stillness is the key, just absolutely cracking books that the leaders of 2,000 odd years ago wrote and it just makes so much sense. So um, read, learn about it, but then, you know, fit it into what you believe in and own it, mate. Mate, there's, uh, there's so many little nuggets of gold that you've given us. Um, I can't thank you enough. It's been an awesome chat. Um, I know that people are going to get a hell of a lot out of it. I think the relatable storytelling is so strong in this day and age and um, you've actually absolutely nailed the brief. So with any luck, mate, we get to see the Claremont Tigers doing their thing uh, post this virus. Um, and hopefully people that don't know you and, and don't know your story that have listened can take a keen interest in on uh, what you're doing in the future. And I wish you all the best, mate. Thanks for your time, Nick. I enjoyed that, mate. Cathartic. Good stuff, mate. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Be sure to share it on all your social platforms or even text an email. And please stay tuned next week for another episode of Hear the Voice. Thanks again.